0: You turn with me in your Bibles to the book of the Acts of the Apostles, as we continue to read this morning in our series through the book of Acts in Acts chapter 17 from verse 16 to the end of the chapter, as Paul the Apostle now comes to the great Greek city of Athens, Acts 17 from verse 16. While Paul was waiting for them, that is, for Silas and Timothy, whom he left behind in Thessalonica, while he was waiting for them in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the God-fearing Greeks, as well as in the marketplace day by day with those who happened to be there. A group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to dispute with him. Some of them asked, what is this babbler trying to say? Others remarked, he seems to be advocating foreign gods. They said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. Then they took him and brought him to a meeting of the Areopagus, where they said to him, May we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting? You are bringing some strange ideas to our ears, and we want to know what they mean. All the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there spent their time doing nothing but talking about and listening to the latest ideas. Paul then stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus and said, Men of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. For as I walked around and observed your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription to an unknown God. Now what you worship as something unknown, I am going to proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples made by hands and he is not served. Uh, by human hands, as if he needed anything, because he himself gives all men life and breath and everything else. From one man he made every nation of men, that they should inhabit the whole earth, and he determined the times set for them and the exact places where they should live. God did this so that men would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He has given proof of this to all men by raising him from the dead. When they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered. But others said, we want to hear you again on this subject. At that, Paul left the council. A few men became followers of Paul and believed. Among them was Dionysius, a member of the Areopagus, and a woman named Damaris, and a number of others. Thus reads the living and abiding Word of God. Now, as many of you know, on these Sunday mornings, we have been tracing the fascinating and instructing travels of the great Apostle Paul and his companions on the second missionary journey recorded in the book of Acts. And you will recall two Sundays ago before my vacation that we saw the Apostle and his companions in the Greek cities of Thessalonica and Berea, where in the latter city the Apostle had had a very remarkable ministry but led to great numbers of people searching the scriptures for themselves and as a result of that activity, coming to faith in the Redeemer of God's elect, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now this morning we've come to one of the richest passages in some ways in the book of Acts altogether. A passage so rich that I realized this week that I will need at least two Sundays to look adequately at what we have read in these verses 16 through 34 this morning, as Paul has been conducted by the Berean brethren out of that city where persecution had typically broken out and is led by sea, we presume, to the great Greek city of Athens. And there we find him waiting expectantly for his co-laborers, Silas and Timothy. Now let me say to you at once, my dear friends, there is something simply enthralling about Paul in Athens, the great Christian apostle of the New Testament era amid the glories of ancient Greece. Now, of course, he had known about this city from boyhood. Every boy at that time knew about the glories of Athens. Everybody talked about that great city that was the center of learning and culture in the Roman age, the cultural capital, indeed, of the ancient world, as Rome was the political capital, and, in a sense, Jerusalem was the religious capital of that age. It had been a Greek city-state from the 5th century B.C., And even Rome so respected the learning and the contribution to human life that this city had made that when they conquered it, they left it as a free city within the Roman Empire with very significant privileges. It boasted a long philosophical tradition from Socrates, the great philosopher, and Plato, his equal, and Aristotle, names that are still known in the intellectual world today, and recognized and respected. It was the renowned seat of the arts and letters and philosophy and culture. And there is something enthralling, as I say, when you think of the great Christian apostle standing in the midst of this city of Athens that was so impressive that was overwhelmingly beautiful as a city, distinguished even from afar by the great hills, triple hills, at the center of the city that distinguished it, the Acropolis on which the ruins of the Parthenon still stand today, one of the great monuments to human genius. And the Agora, the marketplace, where men met and did business together, and where we see presently the apostle taking the gospel and preaching it to the men and women who are passers-by there, and the Areopagus, or Mars Hill, where the main court of 30 learned men who formed the Council of Athens and had to do with all the pursuits of learning and religion met regularly, to conduct their Senate meetings, and before whom we are going to see the Apostle appeared. A city of overwhelming beauty And to this great city of the ancient world, the Apostle Paul now came. Now I want you to notice that it's clear from verse 15 and 16, if you look at them from your Bibles, that Paul did not intend to stay and minister in Athens for any length of time at all. It was a brief respite, clearly, from the arduous labors and perils in which he had been engaged in northern Greece, in Thessalonica, and in Berea, and in Philippi, where, you remember, he had been savagely beaten beforehand. And he had come to Athens, merely to wait for Silas and Timothy. It was a stopping place, a watering place, if you like, en route to the great city of Corinth. And rather than carrying forward any apostolic mission in Athens, he evidently had gone there to rest and recuperate his strength again. And so we find him, look, alone in the cultural capital of the world. Now this is the point that we're going to deal with this morning. What was his reaction there? And what should be my reaction and yours? The reaction of any Christian who lives or visits a city today that is dominated by non-Christian ideology and non-Christian religion. However aesthetically pleasing and culturally sophisticated the city may be, in its moral decadence and spiritual deadness, What should our reaction be? How should we then live? And this morning we're going to begin to learn the great lessons and answers to that question from Paul's attitude and Paul's reaction in Athens. And may God the Holy Ghost so stir our hearts and apply his word to us that we become men and women of the burning heart as the Apostle himself so clearly was. What Paul saw, what Paul said, what God, as a result, did in Athens. That's what's before us. Now, first of all, look with me, if you will, at what Paul saw in verses 16 through 21. Look at verse 16. While Paul was waiting for them, that is, Timothy and Silas in Athens. He was greatly distressed, says Luke the historian, to see what? The city full of idols. Now I suggest to you that this is remarkable and significant, is it not? Remember what kind of city Athens was as I told you about it. Then as now an utterly fascinating city. The academies of learning within it were world-famous. It contained many magnificent temples, the work of the architect Phidias. Its streets were literally lined with statues wrought by the architect Praxiteles. And everywhere there were tributes to human greatness and human genius in the streets of that city. Now, you see, what is so remarkable about what Luke tells us is this, that as Paul walked around the city almost tourist-like, it wasn't the buildings that took his attention. It wasn't the intellectual and cultural history of Athens that deeply moved him and gripped his soul. It wasn't the architecture or the history or the wisdom of its people. Rather, the thing that we are told about the great apostle is that he was stirred, but at an altogether different level. Not on account of being in a cultural paradise, beloved, but on account of being in what he saw was a spiritual wilderness. And he saw three things, as Luke tells us in these verses 16 through 21. He saw superstition, and he saw speculation, and he saw, thirdly, sensation. Verse 16, he saw the city wholly given to idolatry. Not the beauty or the brilliance, remember, of its buildings, but the number of its idols. Now, you will not be aware of this, perhaps not knowing the Greek language But the word that Luke uses for full of idols is a single word in the Greek language, dolos. And it occurs only here in the New Testament and nowhere else in any other Greek literature. It is unique. And most English versions render it full of idols. But literally, the word comes from two words, kata and idolos. Kata meaning under, and of course, idolos meaning an idol. And what Luke is trying to tell us is something much more than being full of idols. It was actually a city weighted down under idols, smothered with them, if you like, swamped with idolatry. Or in the other sense of that word kata in Greek that means luxurious growth, one translator has rightly said it was a veritable forest of idols. Now, you can hardly imagine it today, can you? Because of the Christianizing influence in so many of our cities that are still pagan at another level. But contemporary writers, beloved, tell us that in Athens, there were more gods than in all of the Greek country itself. And one of the Roman satirists of those times said it is easier to find a god in Athens than it is to find a man. Can you imagine it? Innumerable temples, statues, statues, shrines, altars on every street, there on top of the great hill, the Acropolis, the Parthenon, with a statue of the goddess Athena whose gleaming spear could be seen 40 miles from Athens. And images of Apollo, the patron god of the city, and of Jupiter and Venus and Mercury and Bacchus and Neptune and Diana and Esculapius, the god of healing. And so we could go on and on. The whole Greek pantheon of gods was represented in the streets of Athens. And they were beautiful. Sculptured immaculately out of stone, And marble and brass and gold and silver and even ivory. And this is what Paul saw. But you see, not the aesthetical beauty of these idols, but what stirred and inflamed his spirit was a city submerged under the weight of idolatry. Now hold that thought in your mind for a moment because the second thing he saw was speculation in verses 18 through 20 you see that as he began to reason with men in the marketplace epicurean and stoic philosophers passed by and began to dispute and reason with him perhaps even for several days before he was eventually invited to address a special council session of the areopagus now, who were these men? Well, the Epicureans were men who had a theory of life, a philosophy of life. Everybody has a philosophy of life. But theirs was distinguished by this, that they taught that gods were so remote and distant from men, they had no interest in mankind and no influence upon human affairs. And the world itself had come about not by the action of a creator, but by the random concourse of atoms. And consequently, they believed there was no survival after death and no judgment. And that the chief good of man was therefore to seek enjoyment and pleasure as much of it as you can get in this life. And they devised schemes to shield men from painful situations and passion and fear. And their slogan, that some of you are familiar with, was, Let us eat and drink and be merry. Here, for tomorrow it will be all over. The Epicureans. But the others were the Stoics. They were their rivals with an opposite philosophy. And they take their name from the porch where they met Near the great Parthenon, in Greek the word porch is stoa, hence the word stoic. They did believe in a God, but they were pantheists. They said this God had a world soul. He was through everything, the trees and the rocks and the rivers. And it reminds us, doesn't it, that nothing is new under heaven. What does the new age teach us today that you're reading about in your newspapers and hearing about on the television? That there is a God, but he's the world soul pantheism. He's in everything. And so they taught the world is determined by fate. And the best thing that men can do is to pursue their duty to the best of their ability, resigning themselves to live in harmony with one another and develop, above all else, a self-sufficiency, a stiff upper lip in all the perplexities and troubles of life. And that was the philosophy of the Stoics. And you see, what it amounted to was speculation as all human philosophy divorced from God ends up as being pure speculation unaided by divine revelation. And it led, beloved, to disillusionment and cynicism. We put together these great master plans that we say will explain the mystery and the meaning of life. And what do we end up with? disillusionment and cynicism. And it's as modern, isn't it, as today's newspapers. And we know from contemporary writings that these two great philosophical movements that started off so well degenerated by Paul's time into mere cleverness, arguments about words, so that the whole of life became trivialized. And Paul saw it as the second evidence of the deep sickness in Athenian society that only the gospel could address. But the third thing he saw, you notice, was the love of the sensational. Verse 21, look at it. What a verdict upon a sophisticated, cultured, intellectually-minded society. What is the summary of it? That they are fascinated with the latest and the newest. What is new in Athens was the universal cry. They almost worshipped the new and bowed down before the shrine of the novel. Isn't that something that says something significant to you today? when we are urged today and the whole of our society seems to be interested in something that's new and different. The television screen must have something new to bring to your attention. Our ears must always be tickled with something that is novel and we've not seen or heard before. And it's the third sign of the deep inward sickness that is wasting away the life of the Athenians, as Paul saw it because it too breeds disillusionment and despair, because there is nothing new under the sun that can answer life's significant questions, then or now. And these Athenians, you see, ended up being interested only in words. Beloved, as we leave what Paul saw, do you not think of the parallel in our own situation today? That we are living in a similarly idolatrous and superficial society that loves the sensational and has so little time or thought and no effort at all for anything but is serious. And perhaps it's significant that just as in Athens, no strong church was formed, And there was no letter to the Athenians later written by Paul. Isn't that what's happening so tragically in our own age and day? And isn't it significant that the shallow superficial age in which we live today makes it so difficult for the gospel to advance apart from the sovereign power of Almighty God? What Paul saw was superstition and speculation and the love of the sensational. Now, do you notice how this affected him, beloved? In verse 16, he was greatly distressed. In Greek, the word is paroxysm. And it's a medical word, and it means a seizure. And it's used in medical terms of an epileptic fit. And you see what God the Holy Ghost is intending for us to grasp is that the apostle as he saw these things was so profoundly and inwardly moved it was as though he had taken a seizure. And the reason for it is not pity mainly for the Athenians nor simply a desire that they might come into a knowledge of the true God. But when he saw this city submerged under idolatry, he was jealous for the honor and glory of the unique God and the honor of his dear son, the Lord Jesus, that what should have been rendered uniquely to them was being rendered. To a host of wooden and stone and marble idols, and his whole soul was revolted within him at the sight of a city submerged under idolatry. Now, it's of the cardinal importance that we grasp this, because this is the secret of the whole of the apostles' ministry. It's the key to understanding him. His astonishing zeal for God's glory came from his being filled with righteous indignation and jealousy that the honor of Christ was being robbed and taken away. And you know what we need in our lives today, beloved, in our church, in ourselves? It's that same paroxysm for the honor and glory of God. Do you have it? As you go around this city of Jacksonville today, make no mistake, the idolatry is there. Whether it's a home or a car or material possessions or business or your wife or your husband or television or sex or fashions or whatever it is. And you know, the reason why the gospel isn't advancing as it should is that in your hearts, my beloved, and in mine, there isn't that paroxysm of jealousy for the honor of God as we see a city wholly given over to idolatry and oh I would urge on you to seek biblically that zeal that the apostle so evidently showed as he saw with his eyes the real situation now look you with me and somewhat more briefly at what Paul said in verses 22 to 31. Now, let me confess very freely, but there is so much here I cannot deal with it, and I'm not going to attempt to deal with it in detail this morning. We need the second Sunday to look at what Paul said, but let me tell you in compass its significance. And consider first that Paul had every excuse in Athens to do nothing, doing nothing, In Athens, he was a stranger in the city, wasn't he? He was merely waiting there, almost as a watering place, for his beloved Timothy and Silas to join him. He had no particular mission in Athens. The vision, remember, had called him to Macedonia, northern Greece. And moreover, in the midst of this intellectual and cultured city, he was probably very well aware of what the Corinthians, in 2 Corinthians 10, verse 10, called his contemptible speech. But did he sit still in that situation? No. His commitment to Christ, his awareness of the value of the gospel, his unashamed Commitment to the truth, his love and compassion for the souls of men drove him on. Above all, his jealousy for the uniqueness and the honor of the Lord Jesus Christ compelled him to speak. And so you see him reasoning with the Jews in the synagogue in verse 17 and then going out into the marketplace and engaging evidently in dialogue just as Socrates did with the passers-by in the marketplace of Athens. And finally... Perhaps the greatest opportunity in the whole life of this great apostle as he was asked to address a specially called session of the council of Athens known as the Areopagus because it met on the hill of the Areopagus or Mars Hill in order that they might hear a fuller statement of the new things that he had brought to their attention. Beloved, do you see what I'm saying to you? That the Christian church must ever gird itself up to the work of preaching and proclaiming the truth in the face of pagan error and darkness. And he's alone. Yet this mighty apostle went on single-handed with his mission, trusting in him to whom all power is given in heaven and on earth, knowing that the foolishness of God is wiser than men and that the weak things of the world are chosen to confound the things that are mighty. There's nothing more remarkable in the book of Acts than this man alone on the Areopagus speaking to the most learned men of the age and with great effect, as we shall see. Now, what does he do in brief compass? Beloved... He deals with the biggest questions in all of life. What are they? Who is God? Who am I? What is the significance of human life on this planet? Those are the three issues. But I'll explore with you in greater detail next Sunday morning. But look at them briefly with me now. Who is God? Verses 22 to 25. Look at the text. What is the theme? God, the creator, the self-existent one, the self-sufficient one. That's where he begins. And knowing that these people were not acquainted with the Old Testament scriptures, he was not in a synagogue, remember, but in the audience of utter and total pagans who felt their way around in pagan darkness, he took his text from an altar inscription that said in Greek, agnosto theo, to the unknown God. Two words for his text from a heathen altar. And remember from my description of the Stoics and the Epicureans that they believed basically that God, if He existed, was altogether unknowable. And Paul stood before them and proclaimed without any apology, the God of Scripture is knowable. That's the theme of verses 22 to 25. Who is God? He is knowable. And you see in verse 24 that he is the creator. He made the world and all things in it. He is sovereign. He is Lord of heaven and earth. He is everywhere present. He dwells in temples not made with hands. He is self-sufficient. He does not need the service of human hands. He is the beneficent provider of all men's needs. He gives life to all and breath and all things, he says. And in the Athenian darkness, he speaks a word of blinding revelation that is utterly significant. There is a God, and he is knowable, and you are standing in his presence. Now, that's not how the Greeks thought about god is it but the second question is this who am i who am i verses 26 to 29 that's the theme there and he brings before them the thought that god is the father through creation of all of them and he deals with that theme in a remarkable way you see the greeks thought that they were the master race Perhaps you didn't realize that what we saw in the Second World War in Nazism is nothing new. There is nothing new under the sun. The ancient Greeks prided themselves as having arisen from the soil, and they alone were the master race. And with one brush of his pen, as it were, the apostle reminds them, of their smallness and the equality of all men. He has made, God has made, of one all nations. And moreover, he is sovereign over all that they do. The process of history is under his control. He has told them where they will reside and what part of the earth they will occupy. He has appointed the rise of one nation and the fall of another, determining appointed seasons and times, says Paul. Who am I? Who am I? Paul says, I am a helpless creature apart from God. I'll never understand my proper place on this planet and my significance except in relation to God's purpose for me. My quest is doomed to failure apart from that. And what an affront to Athenian pride. He made them feel so small who thought themselves so great. And the gospel, beloved, always makes sinful man feel small in order that God's purpose, you notice in verse 27, might then come about that they might seek after God if haply they may find him. Now the third great big question of life that he addressed then is what is the meaning and significance of human life upon the earth in verses 30 and 31? You see, that's the real problem, isn't it? Man is a sinner. Man has not fulfilled the destiny that God has appointed for him in the times and seasons that he has sovereignly chosen for mankind. Man has turned away from God's purpose, has become alienated from him, and has rejected his revelation that Paul maintained was clear in nature and in history so that they are without excuse. And he needs, in consequence, Paul says, to repent and turn from all his clever scheming and human philosophy that leads only into further murkiness and darkness and return to the living God, to whom Paul says he is accountable and before whom he will stand at the great day of judgment where the man has already been appointed, says Paul, into whom all of human judgment has been given. And brethren, these are the biggest issues of life. Who is God? Who am I? What is the purpose of life? And Paul dealt with them superbly, climaxing in that scene when all of the Athenians stand before the bar of God's holy judgment throne. And in the presence of that one whom God has raised from the dead. You don't believe in resurrection from the dead, do you, Paul had said. But if there is a coming judgment, there must be the continuance of life and you will be there as he is there into whom the judgment of the universe has been committed. And where does that leave you? And so I come to my third and closing point that is very brief. What God did as a result of that remarkable address that came from the lips of the Apostle Paul, the biggest and greatest issues in all of life, beloved, have been dealt with faithfully and scripturally and powerfully and convincingly. And he has brought to the Athenians' minds the issue that life is not trivial, my dear friends. It's not trivial. It burns with the fires of the most intense seriousness and brought to them by an apostle whose heart burned with jealousy for God's glory as he saw a city swamped with idols. What effect then did it have? Look at it in verse 32. Some mocked or sneered. Others simply procrastinated, didn't they? We will hear you again at some more convenient time. And only a few believed and were saved by God's power through Paul's preaching from the darkness of pagan idolatry. But look you Dionysius, a university don, as we would say, a member of the governing council of these learned men, the council of the Areopagus, a most learned man, and Demaris, a woman, and a number of others. As I finish, why so few? Why so few Because life, my dear friends, had become trivialized in Athens. Because men and women wanted to play with the gospel. Because the new thing that Paul brought to their attention was regarded by them as some kind of plaything for their amusement. And I want to tell you this morning... That the gospel, my dear friends, is never a plaything. It demands action. It demands the greatest and most serious attention that a man or a woman, a boy or a girl can ever give to it. It calls for action, repentance from our sins, and the humbling of our heart before the sovereign God of nature and history and redemption. And it sees all of our life as a school in which we are preparing for eternity. Beloved, let me ask you this morning, are you playing with the gospel? Are you playing with the preaching from this pulpit? Do you listen to it as you listen to a man who has a pleasant voice and can play well on an instrument? As God said to his prophet Ezekiel, but never really attending to the things that are being given to you Sunday by Sunday? Do you really view your life here on earth as a training school for eternity? Or are you among the Athenians with their superstition and their sensation and their superficiality? Oh, my desire this morning with all my heart is that you will Come to him out of your sins and out of your darkness and out of your idolatry and bow before the sovereign revelation of God's grace in Christ. Because the only other alternative, my dear friends, even this very morning, is that you will be there in that scene that Paul painted when the Athenians, every one of them, stood at the judgment seat of Christ to receive the fruits of whatever they had done in the body. And oh, how terrible to be there without the knowledge and experience of a gracious Savior. Beloved, the gospel had come to Athens and not many wise and not many mighty had been won by it. But thank God the scripture does not say not any. There were some. Not many, but some. And the trophies of grace came from all ranks and all classes and evidently all ages. Are you this morning among those ranks? Have you listened to what Paul saw? Have you listened to what Paul said? Are you participating in what God did by his sovereign and omnipotent grace. May it be so to his glory. Let's pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, we thank you this morning for this great account of the apostles' visit to a pagan city. And may we indeed be counted, our Father, among those who, though not many, are nevertheless in the kingdom of our gracious Savior, the Lord Jesus, may we as Christians know more of that spirit of zeal and jealousy that the apostle showed, and so may this city, wholly given to idolatry, as really as ever Athens was, feel the effect of the burning heart for the gospel, as the Athenians so clearly did, for Jesus' sake, amen.